Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today we're feeling especially inquisitive and sharing a few of our favorite food science and experimentation moments from the last few years, from how to make a million-layer puff pastry to how to eat a tree. Mature spruce and Douglas fir pine needles can make a great seasoning. 
either steeped in a vinegar or if you blend them in a blender with about three times their weight in salt, you can have this really like exciting, zippy, almost juniper-like sort of referencing gin, but um, also distinctly piney seasoning. Later in the show, we'll hear from flavor chemist, Dr. Ariel Johnson. First up, it's J. Kenji lopez Alt. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? You're probably going to tell me I'm doing something wrong in the kitchen, but I'm a patient <laughs> man, so go right ahead. <laughs> well, I thought we would talk about potatoes today. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was... Um, there was a test I was doing for mashed potatoes for Serious Seats a number of years ago, and, you know, I was testing out boiling potatoes cut into different sizes. So whether whether you boil them whole with the skin on, cut them into chunks. Right. And eventually I was getting to smaller, smaller pieces. And in my head, I was like, all right, so the smaller you cut it, the faster it's going to soften up, which is generally the case until you get to really sort of paper thin slices or sort of shredded on a box grater. And what I found then was if you shred potatoes on a box grater or cut them paper thin on a mandolin, you can boil them for like 45 minutes and they never soften, which I thought was really hmm. sort of fascinating. You know, I looked up a bunch of sort of research papers on this, um, and it turns out there's a couple of reasons for this. The main one is that there's this thing called pectin methylesterase, which is a enzyme that's released from potato cells. And when you have this enzyme plus calcium ions, what it does is it actually firms up pectin, you know, which is sort of the carbohydrate right. glue that holds plant cells together. But it'll actually firm it up so that it won't mm. soften even when you boil it. And so, you know, this is actually quite useful in some situations. So, for example, the reason people soak their French fries, you cut your potatoes and then you soak them in water and you soak them and soak them and soak them. And what you're actually doing is, first of all, you're removing some of the starch so that they don't overbrown, but you're also rinsing off this enzyme and some of the calcium ions so that what actually happens is that the exterior of those potatoes, it's a sort of a surface treatment. They stay firmer as they're frying. So if you take potatoes and just fry them straight in oil, they'll come out a little soft. But if you rinse off the potatoes, say, overnight in clean water, or just rinse them until the water runs clean and then fry them, they stay much firmer. You know, so similarly for dishes like hash browns or, you know, in China and Korea, there's stir-fried potato dishes. And, you know, so what you do with those is you shred the potatoes and then you soak them in water to wash all the starch away. And that way you can sort of stir-fry them. And even though they're fully cooked, they get this sort of crisp cucumber-like texture. And that only works if you soak them. And with American-style hash browns, you know, one thing I realized after learning about this was that, you know, I go hunting every year at this cabin in Michigan, and we always make hash browns there, and we use this well water. So it's this really high mineral content well water, and the hash browns there always come out super crispy and really good. And so now, I'm like, after learning this, I realized the reason that was happening is because that well water is so full of calcium ions. So if you have particularly soft water at home, you can either use some bottled mineral water to rinse, or the other thing you can do is actually add a little bit of acid to it. So a little bit of vinegar to the water will have a very similar effect on strengthening pectin. If you're making like latkes or hash browns or stir-fried potatoes, anything where you want your potato to sort of retain its texture, slicing it thin and then soaking it in hard water is the way to do it. So let's go back to French fries. So mm -hmm. we're still maintaining soaking them after cutting them, or would you also add vinegar to the water? Well, you know, so the way I do French fries, I actually do a sort of triple cooking process. At first, we boil them with a little bit of vinegar in the water. And so that actually has a very similar effect. It firms up the exterior of the potatoes. Then you do the standard double fry process. That gives you that sort of like glass-like, really right. crisp, smooth surface texture. 
If you want something like roast potatoes, you can do the opposite and actually add a little bit of baking soda to the water when you boil them before you roast them. And what that does is it really breaks down the surface of the potatoes faster than the interior does. So you end up with this sort of like almost like mashed potato like slurry that coats the surface of the potato so that when you roast it then it gets a lot more texture. It adds a lot Mm -hmm. of sort of surface area because you have all that broken up matter that's coated on the outside of it. So depending on what texture you want, you know, if you want sort of a crispy glass-like structure, then you would do a little bit of vinegar. And if you want it to be crunchy and more surface area, then you would do a little bit of baking soda. Or just, you know, buy a plane ticket to Michigan and do your yeah, yeah, hash yeah. browns Come there. Out to, our, right? to our hunt camp, yeah. <laughs> Kenji, thank you. You've taken something simple, a potato, and made it complicated. Thanks. <laughs> yes, complicating things is my specialty. Hmm. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats a food columnist for The New York Times and also author of The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. You're listening to a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we find out what is flavor. That's after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week, 
you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's my interview from 2020 with Dr. Ariel Johnson. She's a flavor chemist and fermentation expert. Ariel, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into uh, the Nordic Food Lab and uh, fermentation boxes and all this, um, what is flavor? Because flavor isn't just physical, it's emotional. So could you talk about that? Well, it's true. Flavor is physical and emotional. Um, the way that I like to think about flavor is that there's a physical and molecular component. So every flavor that you experience from food comes from molecules. But there's also a super important, in fact, essential neurobiological and emotional component. So um, most of flavor is actually smell. And smell is a chemical sense. So we actually have molecular receptors at the top of our nasal cavity that bind with smell molecules. And then to actually experience smell and flavor, those signals are passed to the brain where they pass through the emotional centers and are checked against all the memories we have of smell sensations we've had before. So with flavor, you actually experience your memories of similar flavors and your emotions connected to those before you consciously perceive the qualities of the flavor. So would an individual's specific emotions and memories of those emotions affect the perception of flavor? I would assume so, right? Oh, absolutely. With tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami, we have a certain amount of hardwired responses to those. So we have a natural attraction to sweetness and positive feelings about it and a natural aversion to bitterness, since that's often a signal for the presence of poisons. With smells, most of it is kind of a blank slate. So it's up to us from babyhood to build sensory experiences around smells and figure out if they are delicious and make us happy or dangerous and make us sad. Okay, so the Nordic Food Lab at NOMA, uh, what is it people actually do there? Well, 
At the Nordic Food Lab, uh, which was started by René Redzepi, the chef and founder of Noma in Copenhagen, and then later when we started the Noma Fermentation Lab there, those spaces are really dedicated to experimenting with every ingredient that's available in the Nordic region, as well as using the scientific method and literature reviews from all areas of science to understand how cooking and ingredients and flavors all work together. So the goal of all of this was to end up with foods or fermentations you could use, he could use in the restaurant, or was there purely, uh, let's have some fun in the laboratory and see what we could come up with? Well, it definitely it definitely started out as uh, Noma had this creative rule that the ingredients they were using in the kitchen had to come from Scandinavia. So that rules out. Parmesan cheese, lemons, olive oil, a lot of other things that if, especially if you're Western trained, like a traditional French culinary school, you're very reliant on. So the challenge became, how do you get a wide variety of tasty flavors from limited starting ingredients? So it was actually not really possible to draw a line between doing things strictly practically and strictly for exploration, since they all ended up feeding into each other. So give me an example of something you did that worked out really well beyond your expectations. Um, one of them was fermenting pumpkin seeds into miso. So, so miso is a traditional condiment from Japan with roots in China that starts with a very enzyme-rich mold fermentation on rice or other grains. And then Traditionally, for miso, soybeans are added to the moldy grains, which are called koji, and the starch-degrading and protein-degrading enzymes that the mold creates uh, go to work on the soybeans, creating umami flavors and free amino acids and uh, sugars for further fermentation. So some of my previous experience was that if you did this with very fatty ingredients, there was kind of this like oxidized paint taste, but the, the pumpkin seeds had just the right balance of protein and fat that when mixed with this koji, it had this like amazing tropical fruit flavors that came out of it. Now give me an example of something you thought was promising, but just you couldn't make work. Something that I had trouble getting to work was fermenting blood. (laughs) Um, One gets into the mindset, I got into the mindset of there are these ingredients around. You should think about what the composition of those ingredients are. Do they have starches or something that could be turned into starches? Do they have proteins? Do they have sugars? Um, and then you, you know, once you hit on something, you just start trying it out. So blood is a protein-rich liquid. But when, when I was working with it, the, the kind of livery metallic notes uh, came out in a really extreme way uh, that was not pleasant. So bad idea. Um, let's talk about insects. I was yeah. speaking to Kim Severson of the New York Times who wrote a piece about the future of food. Mm. Uh, she thought that the insect, ex- excitement about eating insects would wane. Um, <laughs> you probably have a very different point of view. I think you noted that rainforest ants taste like lemongrass, coriander, and ginger, which is surprising. So do you think that insects, um, not just as a source of flavor compounds, but as a source of protein is something that's going to become a larger part of the human diet going forward? Well, if you, if you have looked into insect signaling, you'll find out, as, as we did accidentally, that ants in particular use lots of flavor molecules called terpenes to communicate with each other. And they're some of the same terpenes that are in 
fruits and herbs and spices. Hmm. So it was not super crazy to, to find that flavor, although we weren't expecting it. But I mean, I think I think insects for protein is already is already happening. I mean, you have the exo bar and other sort of protein meals and replacements. My, my hope, my interest is more using ingredients like insects or any other sort of novel ingredient and finding a really delicious way to eat them. But the the sort of essentiality of macronutrients is inescapable. You're also a proponent of eating trees. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, they're aroma and flavor powerhouses. So w- what part of the tree are we eating and why? Well, if you eat cinnamon, you're eating tree bark. So um, some some species of tree produce a lot of volatile and aromatic compounds in their bark, generally as a antifungal or an anti-insect defense measure that we find really delicious and cultivate and harvest and use as spices. But the twigs and branches and needles of evergreen trees also produce a lot of terpenes and delicious aroma molecules. Some of those have been traditionally used in brewing beer, but um, very young spruce tips are quite tender and acidic. Those are the initial baby shoots that emerge in the spring. So you can just pop those like a little piece of uh, citrus. And then the more mature spruce and Douglas fir and, and pine needles can make a great seasoning, actually, either either steeped in a vinegar or if you blend them in a blender with about three times their weight in salt, you can have this really like exciting, zippy, almost juniper-like sort of referencing gin, but um, also distinctly piney seasoning. Uh, wine and smoke. This was really interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, so could you just talk about that? Because I, I don't quite understand. It's a good magic trick. Just <laughs> g- g- give me an explanation of what's going on and why. Well, in the last 10 to 15 years, because of climate change and uh, increases in summer temperatures, we started seeing in Australia and then eventually in California wildfires. And so what winemakers were seeing was that after a wildfire their grapes smelt very smoky. And sometimes the smoky aroma would go away for a little while. So they would press the grapes, get the juice and ferment it into wine, but then it came back. So the smoke somehow worked its way into the grapes in a way that was much, much deeper than just depositing on the outside. And eventually what um, some grape biologists and flavor chemists figured out was that the grapes were actually absorbing the smoke volatiles using endogenous enzymes to attach sugar molecules to those aroma molecules, which was locking them away in a scentless form. But then when the grapes were fermented, yeasts have a lot of enzymes to undo those bonds, um, which is why generally wine aroma increases as it's fermenting. So these smoky smelling molecules that were locked away by the grapes were liberated by the yeast and the smoke would come back. Hmm. So this is, this is called smoke taint and it's a, an increasing economic and wine quality issue that a lot of people are focusing on. Are there some things you think home cooks or bakers in particular maybe uh, should know about food science that would be helpful to them in, in cooking or baking at home? Oh, definitely. I mean, for bakers, if you're adding seasonings or like garnishes to pastry, 
It's helpful to understand at a super basic level that taste molecules like sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami are mostly water-soluble. And smell molecules, which is basically everything else, um, so like fruitiness, citrusiness, spiciness, herbal notes, those are all more soluble in alcohol and oil. So if you're trying to express a certain flavor of an ingredient, like coffee beans, it'll be more bitter and acidic if you make an extraction in water and then incorporate that. Uh, if you want to just have the aromas of coffee, making a coffee butter or a coffee cream or a coffee mm. tincture uh, is a way to get that while avoiding bitterness. These are excellent. <laughs> you got an A on the test. I just want you to know that, that was very, you go to the head of the class. I feel like I'm back at my qualifying exam for my PhD. <laughs> well, it's a scientific process, which hopefully ends up with something good to eat. Right? Exactly. Ariel, it's been a pleasure and it's been fun having you on Milk Street. It has been so fun talking to you, Chris. Thank you. That was flavor chemist Dr. Ariel Johnson. These days, she's making videos with Bon Appetit and getting ready for the publication of her first book, Flavor Rama, in 2023. Neurogastronomy is the scientific study of the brain and flavor. So here are some interesting facts. It turns out that the weight, color, and texture of the glass or cup you use to drink from has a very large impact on your perception of the contents, including freshness and pure pleasure. Studies have shown that if two cups have the same volume, the taller one is perceived as having more. For example, a tall champagne glass looks like it holds more than a round wine glass. Other studies have shown that plastic containers are perceived as holding more volume than glass. And people will consume more of a product if they perceive the package to be larger. In short, what we eat and drink from may have more impact on our enjoyment of food than the food itself. So once again, it's mind over matter. You're listening to a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News attempts to make a puff pastry with over 1 million layers. That's in just a moment. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. 
but that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's mad French food scientist Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Super. Because I've been working a lot with uh, puff pastry recently. Oh, no. Really? I, I, I did that once, uh, and I vowed I'd never do it again. So Why would you not work with puff pastry? Puff pastry is amazing. It's, if any of the listeners are not familiar with it, it's that light and buttery laminated dough that we find in so many sweets, savory dishes like pies, turnovers. And it, and it just means that being a laminated dough, it's composed of of layers, in this case, uh, alternating layers of, of both lean dough and layers of fat, in, in my case, just butter. Well, I have a theory about the French in puff pastry. Come on, shoot. The French invented puff pastry to show how superior they are to every other culture because it's almost oh, impossible wow. to make. It, it is very hard to do. <laughs> Come on. You're just doing it because you can, man. That's right. Uh, no, I, I don't think it's that complicated, to be honest. I, I think it's really time-demanding. And the experiment I've been conducting very recently just proved my point. It takes a lot of time, but it's not that complicated. One of the key uh, specific of puff pastry is that it's crispy. It has to be crispy. Otherwise, it's just not puff pastry, and that right. makes sense. Um, so I thought, where does the crisp come from? It comes from the alternating layers and the stacking of them. But I thought, could we just increase the crispiness by increasing the number of layers? So that sounds like kind of a crazy idea, but you went ahead and tried that. And and so how many layers did you end up with? Oh, hold on. Not so fast, man. We need to be in pace <laughs> with, with the soundtrack first. <laughs> okay. So I need to make you experience 
the sounds. I've got a few puff pastry with me here, okay. and I need us to be in pace. Okay. So this is a snappy sound because you need to know the, the differences. Snappy. This okay. is snappy. Yeah. Now, if you stack a few layers of snappiness, you get some crunchiness. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And then further down the line, if you want some puff pastry delicacy. Oh, deep. That's a deep one. Ah, that's a deep one. Exactly. So this is what I did. First of all, let, let me just do a quick, super quick uh, wind back on how to make puff pastry. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like making a sandwich. You take two layers of lindo and then you squeeze a layer of butter in between. That's the starting point. And then you perform what is called a turn. You basically flatten that sandwich out and then you fold it on itself like a wallet. So at zero turn, obviously, you only have three layers. You've got dough, butter, and dough. It burns in the oven. It's not very interesting. At, <laughs> at one turn, you've got three times three layers, minus two, because some of them are fusing together. That's seven layers total. And when you bake that, it's kind of burnt as well, but it's snappy. Now, at two turns, things start to get interesting. You've got 19 layers, and you start to get a crispy feeling. Mm. Not exactly a puff pastry feeling, but more like a, a, a phyllo pastry feeling, if, if, you, if you know what I mm -hmm. mean. And starting from three turns all the way to six turns, you get the sound that you got initially. You got the, the puff pastry feeling, that, that, that very delicate, light, and, and, and sequenced crisp. So three turns, 55 layers, four turns, 163 layers, five turns, 487 layers, and six turns, 1,459 layers, which is, at six turns, the standards for French puff pastry. So when you're talking about millefeuille, a thousand layers, that's not hyperbole. You actually get over a thousand different layers, right? Exactly. Oh, thank you so much, Chris, for this segue. That's beautiful. I, I gave you the numbers just to show off. But from a mathematical point of view, it's exciting because this is not linear. This is exponential. Right. So I thought, what would it take to go to 10,000 layers, to, to do 100,000 layers, to a million layer puff pastry? Could, could I make like the ultimate crispy puff pastry at one million layers. So I did that. I, I, I just keep on folding, keep on turning. Just <laughs> it gets me exciting every time. So, so in other words, you obviously don't go out very much anymore. No, I don't go out anymore. I, I gave up on this. You've now ventured into the dark hole of a scoffier here. Don't worry. I, I came back down to earth at the end of, of this experiment. It's, it's not disappointing, but I think it needs to be stated that that's... It's not worth it. Like, at six turns in, like the classic French puff pastry was really crispy. But at eight turns in, it started losing that crisp. At ten turns in, the dough is not even crispy, not even crunchy anymore. There's nothing. It's just like very lightly crumbly. And, and, and at twelve turns in, even more disappointing. It, it, it feels like a cake in the end. We, you, you don't feel any layers anymore. Is that because with, with a thinness at 12 or 10 turns, the butter and the dough sort of meld together? There really are yeah, no... Yeah, exactly. 
That, that's yeah. sad, but you, you, you got it exactly right. Because all these layers, they're just fused together. And, and I just made that super time-consuming cake that did not even taste that good, I would say. Well, the, the obvious conclusion, which I hate to say it because it's in total support of French cuisine, which I like to make fun of occasionally, is that six turns is actually the ideal. So somebody had figured out that it's better than eight turns and 10 turns. Somebody had done this 100 years ago and came up with yes. exactly the right number of turns, right? Yes, I agree with you. But at the same time, at three turns in, it's hard to tell the difference. I mean, that puff pastry at three turns in, so half the amount of time needed for the sixth one, it's just very enjoyable. Why would we go above maybe four turns in? I mean, I'm just talking about people who still make their puff pastry at home. I'm not sure this is like widely common. Do, do, you, do you make puff pastry at home? You said no, I think. No, I said I did it once and realized you did it once. that I just, yeah, the, the problem is the butter leaks out the side. Keeping it in exactly the right shape is kind of difficult. Mm. But, but I, mm. I would say to you, though, that in classic French cooking in a professional kitchen, which no one was making a puff pastry at home probably, uh, the question of time was not an issue. Mm. Perfection was the issue, not time. Understood. But these days, with, 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 Today, with life... Yeah. I wouldn't call my life normal, but with a normal life, you, you, you would definitely consider like having yeah. less work to do with that puff pastry and still getting some very, very decent result because at three turns in, that puff pastry is so much better than any commercial puff pastry you, you can get your hands on. I swear, I swear. Alex Inews, the Scoffier of the 21st century, uh, I might <laughs> actually go try this now uh, at three oh, turns. Yes. I, I'll do yes. it for you. I'll, you know. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was YouTube host and star Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. That's it for today. You can find every single one of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street by going to 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member, get full access to every recipe, access to our cooking classes, and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store and more. We're on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street, and on Facebook, it's Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. Thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.